All right, guys, this is the debrief. We just recorded an episode with Vitalik Buterin, the founder of Ethereum. David, he's one of six founders. I feel like that doesn't give him justice. Or is he one of six or one of seven? I can't, I can never remember. There, there is a, a number of other co-founders of Ethereum, but interestingly, Vitalik is the only one that is actually remaining inside the Ethereum ecosystem. Uh, this is actually not a topic that we just discussed on in the podcast, but, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, it's, 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 interesting, okay. it's interesting to see that like Vitalik is the only, you know, Ethereum co-founder that is still with Ethereum. So I kind of feel like that actually, as a result of the sticking power that Vitalik made, the commitment that he made to Ethereum makes him the founder because all the co-founders are gone. Yeah, it's very strange. I mean, reading um, reading Cammy's book was, was I think, kind of um, insightful on how the founding of Ethereum like started, went down, but it really started from Vitalik's brain anyway. And in a way, that's what we're, that's very much what we did in this episode, right? So we got into Vitalik's brain once again through his writing. That seems to be a way he likes to communicate to the community in general and get his ideas out there. Uh, and what we're doing with Bankless is really providing a, uh, a way to propagate that, you know, a little bit more yeah, and to get fun. it into, yeah, and to get it into discussion form. So uh, that's been really cool because. I personally read every post this guy writes um, because like, I just benefit a lot from them. Before mm. Bankless, I read every post he, he writes. And it's such a, it's so fun to be able to, to talk to him about these articles. Um, so I just have a blast kind of listening to, to him go through his thought process uh, in these articles. And I think um, hopefully listeners are left with a lot of takeaways. But the three things we talked about, David, what kind of um, stuck out the most in your mind during this conversation? The, the first article that we talked about, which is titled, you know, End Notes on 2020 Crypto and Beyond, that was, that was Vitalik's like synopsis of the very unexpected year of 2020. Uh, and this is, I think, where uh, there's a lot of underappreciation of what Vitalik speaks about and writes about. Like, he's obviously a very talented crypto economic researcher. He's on the frontier of crypto economics. Um, however, he's also very savvy and attuned to social dynamics and cultural dynamics. And that's, that's I think, is what really came out of this, uh, this blog post here is, is Vitalik knows that these public permissionless blockchains, Bitcoin and Ethereum, they are uh, cultural revolutions. They are social phenomena. And, they, and the, you know, what is economics other than the perceived scarcity of goods? You know, economics is the study of scarcity and, and scarce valuable resources. But that value aspect is codified in people's brains. It's in this shared social narrative of people. And Vitalik is very attuned to this. And so he's very attuned to the way uh, mass psychology behaves. People behave with other people. That's one of the most, and missing that component, missing the social aspect of these systems, I think is, is uh, uh, critical to actually understanding how these systems actually work. And so I think that's actually the, you know, we, we have so many different cohorts of, of people, especially now in 2021, coming into this industry. We have like the Chris Dixon A16Z types that are very tech focused. We have the Lynn Alden types who are very macro focused. I think the social and political aspects are is one of the hardest domains 
for, for people to grasp about this industry that are, they're not yet ready to understand these things as political revolutions. Yet Vitalik is really pioneering that area of thought. And that's kind of what I got out of his first, his first article. Do you know what was interesting when I asked that question? I asked the question of, uh, um, okay, values are important in a crypto system. How do you get values into a crypto system? And his response pretty quickly was founders. Like the, the value system of the founders matters a lot. I'm, I'm kind of reminded of like, um, you know, like the founding fathers mm-hmm. of, of the United States, how important they were, how they kind of imbued uh, the U.S. with sort of a, a certain DNA from inception that certainly carries forward in the protocol itself, the Constitution being the protocol of the United States, but it also carries forward in the value system that I think most Americans hold today, how important the mm-hmm. founders are. He being a founder of Ethereum, Satoshi being a founder of Bitcoin. And you can kind of contrast that with, you know, say, um, Justin Sun, <laughs> founder of Tron, right? I suppose, mm-hmm. or some others with their value system. It's like w- the human element is so important here, right? Like, it, I guess, what do you think Vitalik's values, values are? Hmm. What? That's a hard question to answer. <laughs> um, One of the things, David, I think is like, I, in a lot of conversation I've had with Vitalik, um, one of the things he always tries to steer people away from is maximalism and that polarization. Yeah. And polarization. And he, he brought up a lot, you know, quite often sort of um, peace, you know, and how to construct um, wins for everybody. Mm -hmm. Right. Like one of the values I think Vitalik has that, that comes across in every encounter, everything I've been like, he, he definitely sees the world as a, as a positive sum game. It's sure. not mm-hmm. fixed pie. Right. Um, everybody can win in Vitalik's version of things, right? Or I feel like maybe some other crypto communities, maybe in like the Bitcoin community has this scarcity mindset, yeah. right? Um, you have to lose in order for me to win sort of thing. Right. And whenever, I, I always almost feel like Vitalik kind of chides the community when they get to rabid and maximalist and nationalist. And he's like, hold on, like give these other, these other chains an opportunity, give them a chance. Let's hear them out. Everybody can win here. That does seem to be a founding value and certainly came across in, in our discussion with him on that. Yeah, definitely where my brain was going during some parts of this conversation was that like, other people, and I would probably even say that you and I fall victim to this sort of behavior is like, you know, we're more Ethereum maximalist than Vitalik is, like to some degree. Like yeah. sometimes, sometimes <laughs> yeah. we have like our own bias that makes us, you know, more, more, more. And I'll, I'll totally admit that I've, I've fallen into this trap where like I kind of think, I do kind of think, agree with Bitcoiners that perhaps there's actually only room for one, one blockchain in the, in the very distant long term. That's kind of where I see the the network effects and gravitational pull pulling things and and you know one of Vitalik's values and the values baked into Ethereum by Vitalik and you know others the, the Ethereum researchers is inclusivity right this whole entire six year long effort of like rolling out ETH two the reason why that has taken so long is because we have foundationally the crypto economic researchers like Vitalik like like Justin Drake 
their core prerogative, their, their prime motivation is to make Ethereum more inclusive. And they do that in two different ways. I inclusivity in being able to actually touch the Ethereum L1, like the average individual who uh, has just like, you know, a few dollars to their name should be able to make a transaction on the Ethereum L1. Like it should be able to include the whole globe. And then also inclusivity at the consensus level, right? Anyone who is interested should be able to have the capacity to provide and participate in consensus. And mm -hmm. so I would definitely say Vitalik's um, values include inclusivity, right? And that's very much, you know, we can, we are better together. That's very much the public goods mindset. The, the, fest, the, the, what Andreas Antonopoulos calls the festival of the commons, where the value is actually created exponentially as more people join the system, right? Um, and just one note on uh, what you were talking about with founders um, and the importance of founders in establishing the, the values of a protocol. Um, I, I majored in psychology when I was in, in, in college. And the, the first, one, one of the biggest and easiest rules that you learn is that first impressions are matter. First impressions <laughs> are important. Right. Uh, and to me, I feel like that's what like the genesis of a chain, that's like a, a chain's first impression. The founders kind of like lay a signature or a fingerprint. And I would say the same thing is true of the founding fathers of America. The, the, found, the values of the founders put in a stamp. They put in their fingerprint. They put in, they, they stamp on, they impress upon the system, their values. Uh, and there's no escaping that. Like once, once it's there, it's there and it perpetuates. And so that's why, it's all, that's why it's really important to get things right from Genesis, right? Like that's why we call Bitcoin the immaculate conception. That's its stamp upon the world. And Ethereum, the immaculate ICO, that's its first impression upon the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, exactly to your point, right? And that 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 is why maybe um, sometimes where Vitalik is often very inclusive of things, um, sometimes my natural pushback is a little bit like, no, we should be a bit more maximalist about this thing. And I don't mean ma maximalist to a specific implementation of a chain, mm -hmm. but maximalist to something deeper than that, something at a lower level, like maximalist to a set of values. It's like, no, if if Tron wins, right? I'm just picking on Tron. Dude, it's easy you know, to pick like, on Tron. If Binance chain wins, whatever, we have a less decentralized world yes. than if Ethereum wins. Mm -hmm. And do I care about like my chain, my asset, all of these things? Mm -hmm. Probably to some extent, You're but what bags. I- what, yeah, in my bags, yes, that's all human nature. But what I also care about very deeply is the values that mm -hmm. are inherent in Ethereum that aren't present in some of these other chains. I'm kind of maximalist about that. I think Vitalik would agree a little bit with mm -hmm. that, but he would also maybe not agree with some of it. You'd be just like, well, careful, because you could turn into something you don't want to turn into and be like sort mm -hmm. of nationalist and tribal and um, alienate uh, people who could be your, your, your friends. And, you know, like he's very, he's, he's very much, uh, more like peace, you know, mindset. And mm -hmm. I, I, that's definitely part of the Ethereum DNA, right? Like Athenians versus Spartans sort of thing, right? right? Are mm -hmm. a bit more builder and you know, peace oriented. So, um, anyway, you know, anything else you want to say about that first part? Yeah. Um, what was I going to say? I was going to say something. <clears throat> I'll have to cut this. Uh, give me a, give me a moment. Right. 
One thing that, that came to mind as you were speaking is when Vitalik was talking about neutrality, right? I think the reason why you and I are biased towards Ethereum is because we are biased towards neutrality. I, I think that's the perhaps the self-ingratiating like perspective to have. But you know, Ethereum is neutral. It provides a neutral, credibly neutral ground for building. And I see value in that. Uh, and I'm inclined to help promote that. And I don't see that same neutrality in, you know, Tron or Cardano or whatever. I, I could I could admit that I could see there could be neutrality in Polkadot. I think if if there was any blockchain to not be maximalist about and and give the benefit of the doubt to, it would be Polkadot. Polkadot does seem to have been constructed with um, some of the ethos that we value in Ethereum and to, is also present in in Dot. Uh, so there, I, I could lend some legitimacy there. Um, but at the end time, at the same time, I could still be maximalist about like, well, all the, all the economic activity is happening on Ethereum and is Polkadot really better or is it just alternative? And if it's just alternative, then why are we even bothering? Because all the network effects are on Ethereum. So it, if that makes me an Ethereum maximalist, I guess so. Um, and, and of course it depends on what your definition of like an Ethereum maximalist is or a maximalist in general. Um, yeah, that's the thing is I, um, I always say like, I, I have it. I've never met an Ethereum maximalist, right? Like there's a few people on Twitter, like a few personalities on Twitter who maybe they're Ethereum maximalists, but for Anti the most bro. part, <laughs> you right. Shout out anti-pro. Um, but like for the most part, um, I think a maximalist is basically like someone who says my chain, my coin, there shall be no others. Everything else is shit coin, right? Yes. And if something else is successful, that comes at the detriment of my chain. Exactly. And I very much don't think that about Ethereum. So now there's there's also kind of the um, the investment decision that you're making, right? Like like you're placing bets in all of these various assets, and um, where are you going to place your bets, right? You might you might I might be happy to reach out to Cosmos or Zcash, right? Think they're fantastic projects, whatever. But does that mean their asset is going to accrue value? That's also a separate question. Um, anyway, so let's get on to uh, the, the second topic, which was uh, roll-ups. Bullish, bearish roll-ups coming out of that. What do you, I know you're probably bullish going mm -hmm. in, but um, did that make it more real and concrete to you? Yeah, absolutely. I think my only major takeaway from the roll-ups conversation is, is um, the, I think the one week delay for withdrawals coming out of optimistic, the optimistic flavor of rollups, I think is kind of sucks. And like, I actually haven't experienced that UX myself and very, very few people actually have, if, if any at this point. Um, but I feel like that one week delay, like the crypto industry, and especially during a, a bull market, tokens move fast. Like a, you need to, if you want to, you know, access a token that you think is going to move quickly in price, you need to access that instantaneously, right? Like uh, bull markets really favor people that can move quickly. And the one week delay on receiving your assets from an optimistic L2 onto Ethereum, I think it's going to be a really hindrance upon adoption. I don't think really people want that. The happy path though, is that you won't actually uh, suffer that. It'll be like you click a button and you have to pay a toll and it's like a, say you have a dollar, it's a one cent toll, and then you get your funds instantly, or you can wait seven days, right? right? And that would be if there is some sort of a liquidity provider, a relayer, like on the other side. So yeah, I totally agree. A one week delay would suck and that would kill UX, but hopefully it, it actually won't be implemented in that way. If there are sort of these liquidity keepers that are willing to exit you for a, for a fee, um, but they, yeah, were kind of, that, kind of, they were kind of just, you know, 
and to some degree, this will always be true. This is a part of the fabric of the universe. But then like, you know, the, the less wealthy cohort has to wait and the more yeah. wealthy cohort gets to take the carpool lane, right? The fast pass lane. And so you yep. just pay your way into, you know, privilege. It's, so yep. like, you know, that kind of sucks. But again, like, that's not something that really Ethereum is set out to solve. I think Ethereum, when it comes to the wealth inequality layer uh, or at topic of things, it, it, it doesn't make things wealth inequality any worse, which is actually a huge improvement from most of the technology that we have available today. It just yeah. like perhaps puts a pause on that polarization, but it definitely doesn't solve it. You know, the wealthy will always be able to have more options than the non-wealthy. And like, that's definitely not solved by optimistic L2. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's it's not. Um, best case scenario is you give more people, I guess, access for cheaper to trustless transactions. That's what a roll-up does. Mm -hmm. So everybody gets a bank account, mm -hmm. um, but it definitely doesn't solve wealth inequality. And I think there, there's even a case, David, for like crypto that exacerbates it, right? <laughs> like wealth inequality. I mean, the people that got to crypto early if this becomes a globally adopted system are going to do like quite well relative to those who come late. I mean, the people who, if we're talking wealth and wealth inequality, the people who really need crypto can't afford to buy it right now is kind of the reality of it. So, or afford to like, you know, get into Reddit comments and in crypto Twitter because they don't have the time to invest in, in put this new industry. Yeah, exactly. So maybe like access to opportunity and definitely bullish on that access to banking that they don't have. I think it's going to be an equalizing factor, but I'm not of the uh, utopian viewpoint that crypto is going to, you know, like magically solve some sort of wealth gap problem that the world or the US faces or something. But um, yeah, rollups, the, the idea I think of um, living your whole DeFi life on a single rollup. I remember we had this conversation earlier about um, fiat gateways in rollups. So what could be interesting is rather than starting your crypto experience in Coinbase, maybe you start with a uh, smart wallet, smart contract wallet, uh, social recovery wallet directly on a rollup. And that's connected to a bank account. So you've got a fiat gateway there and you live your entire DeFi life on a rollup and you actually never go to the main chain. Uh, that could be sort of the future that, th that this paints if rollups are successful. Yeah. So when you said that in the podcast, I actually took pause on that because that's actually a very frequent criticism that we make of the Bitcoin blockchain. Because what if you just live all of your, your Bitcoin financialized life inside of like Coinbase and BlockFi and never actually use the Bitcoin L1? I actually kind of drew a, a line of comparison there. How would you respond to that? Yeah, I think the difference uh, is pretty fundamental in that a rollup is secured by Ethereum's layer one. So it is just as decentralized as Ethereum's layer one. You're not making it a trade-off. So you actually, in a rollup, you actually are holding your private keys, right? You are holding your crypto. There's no one else, there's no one else custodying it. And it's all secured by Ethereum. Of course, in a Coinbase, uh, you're giving up your your assets to uh, to a crypto bank, and that's more of a like a sidechain type experience. It's not secured by a Bitcoin or Ethereum in the way that a rollup is. That's what makes Layer Two unique. So I do think it's different. Um, yeah, but like, I guess the idea that future generations getting into crypto won't use Ethereum the way we use Ethereum today that stuck out in my mind. And yeah, maybe there's a little bit of nostalgia about that, I guess, right? Um, but I'm sure it'll be better in the future. 
Yeah, I think in the maybe perhaps, you know, 10, 20, 30, 50 years, people will look back at like, you know, the the yield farming and Uniswap trading that we all did on the L1. And they were like, those guys were crazy. Look at the <laughs> precious block space that they were just filling with trash. You know, yeah. I think that's probably going to be what the future is like. Yeah, totally. And that trash that they have to like, that's embedded in Ethereum state forever. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Um but so how about this last subject, social recovery wallet? So what's mm-hmm. your feeling on, on those? Like we've talked a lot about Argent. It feels like a great user experience. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at the same time, I'm not quite there personally with like social recovery and trusting everything to like, uh, you know, a, a smart contract wallet, but what's your take mm-hmm. on this? Yeah, one thing that we didn't bring up in the podcast is that using a smart contract wallet for your day-to-day activities, like for storing and managing all of your funds, is actually more expensive than using an externally owned account like a Ledger or a MetaMask. Because if it goes through a smart contract wallet, you know, a a simple ETH transaction is 21,000 gas, but a simple ETH transaction through a smart contract wallet, it takes more gas. It takes something like 35,000 gas in the Argent wallet. And Mm -hmm. so there's actually a a gas intensive premium associated with smart contract wallets because of how it's a smart contract wallet. Like you have to run that logic through a contract first. Um, And so it's actually more gas intensive to use smart contract wallets on the L1 like Argent. and so that's actually kind of makes me bearish for smart con- L1 smart contract wallets throughout 2021, just because people are going to be scared away by the fees. Like people aren't like you and me, Ryan, where we're natively bankless. We hold the majority of our wealth inside of Ethereum. And therefore, like, you know, the when we make a transaction with, you know, with our wallets, it's like a relatively small percentage of our overall net worth. But when people come in and they put like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to put $500 into this ether thing, see what's up, you know, see how I like it. And then they make a transaction on, on using their smart contract wallet. And it takes like a dollar or $2 out of their $500 supply. Like that's yeah. a lot. That's huge. Um, uh, that's kind of where my head is at for the the next like very near term, the next year or so when it, when it comes to smart contract wallets. Yeah, I agree. So like, I totally love the user experience of smart contract wallets. Like an Argent feels as easy as as Venmo, but the hindrance there is actually going back to kind of the roll up idea. It's the hindrance is gas fees. I've had um, people when we're just starting getting started in Bankless, and of course, like something like Argent is where we recommend them to go. Um, and they do. I had a friend who did this. He got into Argent, but he just wanted to try it. Small amount of funds. And then gas fees shot up. This was during DeFi summer. And he's like, I can't afford to take my money back out. Like, and I felt bad because I'm like, oh yeah, sorry. Gas fees can gotcha. do that. <laughs> <laughs> now your money's in Ethereum and is there for good. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, like, fortunately, he's just kept it there and his ETH holdings went up and it's it's all fine. It's working out <laughs> fine for him. But like, um, I think what is needed is this fusion of roll-ups plus smart contract wallets. And then maybe you have something. Um, Loopring seems to have that. Argent, I know, is going to be moving to a roll-up type layer two solution of some sort. Soon. Oh, I did not know that, but that makes sense. Yeah. And cool. so I think um, then we'll really put this thing through its through its paces. But part of the the challenge that I'm not sure that everyone realizes is this entire DeFi thing essentially has to be rearchitected on layer two, right? Like there needs to be some migration. I mean, Argent has to move over. All these DeFi protocols have to to move over. Um, that is going to be like something that 
maybe slows the velocity of, of things down that we should anticipate in the, in the coming months? I think adds friction to it, yes. However, the incentive for doing it is massive, right? And especially with like, you know, DeFi, DeFi is what it is today. Yet so many, so much of DeFi and so much of Ethereum is like brand new in the last six months. So many of the primitives, so much of, so much of the, the scaling solutions, like the two flavors of rollups um, and so many of the users, everything is so fresh. Like, you know, Ethereum is six years old, but it's really two years old. And it's almost yeah. arguably even younger than that. Like all the development has happened in such a recent amount of time that like, and we talked about this in, in the podcast with Vitalik, you know, even some things like social recoveries or, or L2s are just important money Legos that can add to this Cambrian explosion of what I think is DeFi. Uh, and more these these money Legos are solidifying and becoming more concrete and more easy to work with and easier to plug together. Um, mm -hmm. And so while there's plenty of friction because of the Lindy and network effects that Ethereum L1 DeFi has gotten, uh, the incentive and the buildability of all these money Legos on L2 is really, really strong. Yeah, I agree, totally. Um, there is a decision that DeFi, DeFi protocols have to make though, which is like, do, do we choose to have a layer two strategy at all? Or do we let someone else cut their teeth on it? We'll let synthetics go first, let Uniswap go first, right? Then there's also the decision of what layer two to adopt. It does definitely seem like all DeFi is going to a roll up. So the decision is, do I go optimism or do I go ZK, right? So you've got that decision too. Um, and then there's the decision of what specific optimism rollup or ZK rollup do I want to live on, you know? And like, I think we've said before, the, the hardest part about all this is not necessarily the technology. That's definitely a piece of it. That'll come together, but it's like the social coordination of this thing, right? Like I do like Hasib's analogy of the cities and then you've got the suburbs and the farmland, right? So Mainnet is Manhattan right now, really expensive to live, super busy. And the, the, the offices and like companies, everyone who wants to work together in Manhattan, they haven't yet decided which borough they're going to move to and live in, right? Like, do I go to Brooklyn or do I go to Queens? Or like, they haven't decided. So that's going to be interesting to, to uh, watch that play out. But the interesting thing I'm observing, David, is... Not to be Ethereum Maxplus, as we were talking about earlier, but they are not so much deciding to move to a new chain as they are which layer two solution to deploy. I haven't heard many DeFi projects talking about like, oh, let me go to uh, Cardano. Right. Um, <laughs> so, well, that's that's just the benefit that all L2s will have is like, e like even the commitment to move away from the Manhattan into a specific flavor of L2. If, you, if the worst case scenario is that you're wrong. So you just move back, right? Like, yeah, yeah right. You, so whatever. So you just erase <laughs> yeah. some, some, some progress, but like you're still connected to the ecosystem. You still have other optionality. The assets still live on Ethereum. Um, and so it's actually not a mat, like picking and choosing an L1 is a bigger choice and, there, and therefore easier choice because everyone has already picked Ethereum uh, than it is to pick an L2. It's less consequential to pick the wrong L2 than it is to pick the wrong chain. Yeah, exactly. And one big 
thing, like one, one part of this I'm very bullish about is that there's this idea in like software development of the cathedral versus the bazaar, right? And the cathedral is how people used to do software development, very like top down, right? And the bazaar is open source. It's uh, chaotic, right? You never like, it's this marketplace of ideas. It's right. some, some the dark meritocracy, forest. right? The mainnet is a bit like a cathedral in, in some respects. There's kind of some central planning. There's which, you know, EIPs. God, how long does it take to get an EIP to mainnet, right? Um, but these layer twos can move really quickly, like, like really quickly. They can rapidly iterate. They can adopt uh, smart contract wallets directly on the layer two and innovate in a way that mainnet just, just doesn't. And so we get this kind of Cambrian explosion of, of uh, layer twos trying things out and they're all economically incentivized to be the winning layer two. So it's kind of a bizarre for innovation right now that I think is gonna be really healthy and is going to lead to uh, some, you know, like some some really good innovation for for DeFi projects and users. So on that, I am I am bullish, even though there's going to be some fragmentation. I'm I'm bullish that there'll be more innovation through this. And if there's one thing that if, uh, 2021 Ethereum is going to supply all of these teams with, it is an endless cohort of interested new users to come and ex experiment with everything, right? That's what yeah. this is. It's going to, the prices are going to go up and users are going to be attracted and every single L2 will get ample amounts of users just, you know, playing around and experimenting. And that's how this industry moves forward. Absolutely. Very good. Well, shall we end it there then, David? I think we shall. All right, guys. Hope you are enjoying these debriefs with me and Ryan. Like we've been saying, this is the time where Ryan and I would have these conversations anyways. And we kind of powwow about like what that episode meant. And now we are just making these conversations available. Hope you enjoy them because they are where I do a lot of my learning. We just did it like we just did it live, live the live learning in the last 20 minutes. And so I, I'm hoping you guys are, are learning as well as, as me and Ryan are. Guys, thanks a lot for hanging with us. Take care.